TUC Radio San Francisco. Time of useful consciousness. Imperial San Francisco. The underground history of the gold rush. This is part of the story of a city grown from 16 houses on sand dunes in 1850 to the largest city on the Pacific coast in only 30 years. The book Imperial San Francisco by Dr. Gray Brecken is one of the few examples of a scholarly dissertation that describes history in a new way and then becomes a very popular book. Imperial San Francisco brings to light the huge sacrifices extracted from the surrounding land by any city, from Babylon to the Italian city-states to the instant cities of North America. Gray Brecken says that he tried to answer the question he posed himself. Was it worth it? Today's program focuses on gold mining and the fate of the forests. Next week we will talk about the valleys flooded and rivers diverted to bring water to San Francisco. Was it worth it? And really also by extension, what was it worth for whom? Because only a small part of the wealth extracted from California to build San Francisco can actually be traced to the buildings and bridges parks and waterworks of the city. The overwhelming portion lies hidden in the wealth of the families that ran, and in many cases still run the city, in corporations, banks, and real estate. This is a provocative, intriguing, and unusual way of looking at a city, especially at one that everybody loves, San Francisco, the beautiful, the dream of travelers and immigrants. Gray Brecken opens Chapter 1 with a metaphor, the maelstrom described by the poet Edgar Allan Poe. The maelstrom is a legendary whirlpool of the coast of Norway. Observed from the cliff above, the sea all of a sudden begins to boil and a funnel opens up. Here's Gray Brecken reading from that vignette. Nothing that fell within the maelstrom's reach could resist the suction of the vortex or the transformation that it wrought on all that it swallowed. Ships vanished. Hapless whales and bears were dragged howling into the hole. The trunks of firs and pine trees, quote, after being absorbed by the current, rise again broken and torn to such a degree as if bristles grew upon them. And that's Poe's account of the opening of the whirlpool, a very apt metaphor for what cities do to the natural world. They transform it. They pull everything into it and then spit it out, totally transformed, often completely wasted. I had on my wall for a long time a copy of a little etching that was done uh, just over 150 years ago, which showed San Francisco as a tiny village, and there were about 15 houses, including a prison. Yes. It was a vast field of sand dunes and and lakes, not very many creeks because it was so sandy that the creeks ran underground, and then a few hills poking up above the sea of undulating sand dunes. There were marshes. And then with the announcement of gold, right after the uh, conquest of California by the United States, suddenly tens of thousands of people, almost all of them men, began arriving from all over the world. And that, of course, dramatically um, changed the, not only the site of San Francisco itself, but, in fact, first all of California, which is sort of the outer ring of the whirlpool, which it pulled into itself. And then Hawaii, Nevada, Oregon, 
the entire Pacific Basin, in fact, becomes the ever-expanding whirlpool, which was pulled into the financial district of San Francisco to make a few fortunes of those sort of legendary families that you read about in history books. Now, you say in your book that the um, economy of the gold rush was really one that fueled the first growth and expansion of the city. Well, it was the gold that began pulling people in into California, and it's still used as a useful metaphor for drawing more people into California. Uh, we haven't located anybody who made a lasting, a dynastic fortune from the gold rush itself. And the people who really made money were those who got the land. Uh, some manufacturers and importers, but mostly the people who got here and got the land. And for those people, there could never be too many people. So what the gold rush did was to provide a kind of a magnet to draw people in to give the land value. Um, and it was very effective in that. Later on, they would use the public treasury to increase the value of the land in a number of ways. But the first thing was the gold itself, or the lure of the gold. There's a chart in your book that shows that really only the first few years of the gold rush were a boon to the individual digger. And very soon thereafter, gold was needed to bring out the gold. Yes. There's an old saying amongst miners that it takes a mine to run a mine, actually, and that's very appropriate. That chart really amazed me when I saw it. It peaks out, and then it begins falling almost as sharply as it rose. There were tens of thousands of men tearing apart the Sierra to get the gold. But eventually there were so many of them that they got all the readily available gold, the placer gold that was in the streams, and then the production begins falling off. And what that then means is that then you have to begin using high technology and capital to get the gold. And what that means is that you need a stock market. And the stock market was established in San Francisco in 1862, not only to get the gold, but to get the silver in Nevada. And that's where people really made their fortunes, other than in land. They made it by manipulating insider information on the San Francisco Mining Exchange, which was connected to other stock exchanges through the world by the new invention of telegraphy. You also say that uh, quite a few people were aware of the presence of gold in California and had already placed themselves in a position to benefit from it before it was officially um, discovered. Yes. Yes, that's part of the myth of California, that John Marshall discovered gold in, in uh, January 24, 1848, and that was repeated, actually, on the 150th anniversary. California began a series of commemorations about that signal event, But what really surprised me was I found that gold, the, the presence of gold was already known. There had already been a gold rush in 1842 at the San Fernando Mission in Southern California, um, and about 2,000 ounces of gold had been sent back to the Mint in Philadelphia. This is four years before the United States, in fact, attacked Mexico um, and began the Mexican-American War to acquire California. Even President Polk, in his outgoing address in 1848, December of 1848, when he announced the discovery of gold in California, said that the presence of gold and many other things was already well known in California at that time. And the newspapers in California in 1847, uh, the very earliest newspapers were reporting gold, sulfur, mercury, oil, coal, all sorts of stuff that was already being developed. And officially, California wasn't even part of the United States at that time. But it soon would be, of course. Uh, what kind of technologies um, were spawned by this sudden influx of money? 
One of the first things they did was called river mining. They actually tore down forests, milled them into lumber, and then created giant flumes to divert whole rivers out of their beds. Then they would hire, um, bring in Chinese, Chinese coolies, who would excavate, blast and excavate the entire bed of the river while there was no water in it as fast as possible because once the rain started uh, and the floods began, the flume would probably be completely washed away. So you only had a few months to work on that. That required huge amounts of capital, and that could only be raised on stock markets. Um, and it was. Then you had hard rock mining, and that required very high levels of capital to go to dig um, your shafts and tunnels into the earth to get the stuff and to have the um, mills for reducing the ore and the smelters and everything else. But the most destructive of all was hydraulic mining. Hydraulic mining went after those buried rivers. And here again, this is high technology which was pioneered in California starting in 1852 um, when several inventors began to realize that you could create a, um, a hydraulic infrastructure by damming rivers high at their heads and creating a high head of pressure. And then with high pressure iron pipes, bring that water down to a lower level and release it through giant water cannons called monitors. And with this, you could tear apart the landscape and uncover these fossil rivers, which were buried up to 600 feet deep. Um, they did that. When I saw the photographs taken by Carlton Watkins of those operations, I was just stunned, as people were at the time, because this is really humanity becoming a geological force. And I wondered, what did that look like to the natives who just a few years before had never seen a white man before. And suddenly, into their land comes not only these white men, but they're absolutely ripping apart everything that they had known. I thought it must have looked like thermonuclear war to them. But it also had terrible environmental impacts downstream because this was sort of free enterprise run amok. And the, the whole idea of hydraulic mining was that the waste that was produced from the what was called the overburden became the problem of the next guy downstream. That was off your property and you didn't care. And that meant terrible floods um, down below, which destroyed towns, farms, buried uh, the farmlands in sand and gravel up to the tops of oak trees. And so ultimately that was stopped by a pioneer court decision in 1884 called the Sawyer decision, which really rocked the whole industry of mining and is often regarded as one of the first environmental lawsuits. But in fact, it's not. It's the triumph of one form of real estate over another. I like this little story of, uh, of 1862 where Leland Stanford had to be rowed to his inauguration because Sacramento was flooded. The Sacramento River became 40 miles wide. It essentially filled up the whole Sacramento Valley from the Sierra foothills to the coast range. And so... Sacramento became a kind of Venice. It was completely flooded, and Leland Stanford had to be rowed up to the state capitol to take his vows as the Republican governor. By the way, he was also president of the Central Pacific Railroad at the same time that he was governor, which provided a nice conflict of interest if you wanted public subsidies. Actually, before we go into talking about how mining now got in conflict with the emerging farming and agriculture downstream. Um, let's talk just a little bit more about the deforestation. What I found really shocking to read in your book that many railroads were just built in order to bring in more lumber. Railroads were typically extended out to get resources, almost secondarily to carry people, in fact. 
although you carry people to bring them in, actually to increase the value of the land. So when San Francisco gets going like any city, in fact, a shockwave of deforestation spreads out from the city uh, to get lumber and to get fuel to run the city. And this happens with all cities, I believe. But uh, it couldn't be altogether effective until the railroads were built and extended out into the lumber regions. And then they acted very effectively as weapons against the forests. And forests all around San Francisco and every other city that developed Sacramento and all um, began to have a devastating effect on the forest, and particularly in the Sierra Nevada. The Sierra Nevada has been almost entirely lumbered off. Um, because of the need for wood, as well as the need for fuel, because California is rich in almost everything except coal. It doesn't have coal, and so they were burning wood to a great extent. And then the railroads themselves required fuel uh, to run, but also for railway ties. And San Francisco became a port of export for building railroads throughout the Pacific. So redwood trees, for example, became ties in the railroads in Peru and Chile, for example, throughout the entire Pacific. Also, the lumber that, that was used to shore up the underground mines. Well, one account is they deforested the Sierra for 100 miles on the east side facing Nevada, and then they, they began chewing into the forests around Lake Tahoe. Uh, the Tahoe Basin was almost entirely deforested, gigantic timbers which were linked up together into three-dimensional cubical constructions underground in order to get the bonanza bodies of ore out. They had never run into such large ore bodies before. Previously, you would just tunnel in, but now you had to construct actually gigantic buildings, like skeletal frame buildings underground, and you did that with the wood from the Sierra. And that caused a tremendous amount of devastation and erosion and it's even uh, one uh, writer on the Territorial Enterprise in, in Virginia City actually said it was causing climatic changes in Nevada because as you stripped off the trees, uh, the snow melted faster, causing floods in Nevada. And in fact, the climate had become more extreme. Now, that's a very interesting environmental observation at that time. The debris that now began to wash down the rivers came partly from the hydraulic mining partly from the deforested hillsides, uh, but the debris that then filled the rivers below and began filling the bay and showed up as a plume outside the Golden Gate, Yes, the debris was also carried toxins, mining toxins with it. Well, yes, uh, but before I get to that, I want to say that, you know, it was also road building, any kind of construction. There was no concern for, you know, um, treating the land well and then setting fires whether accidentally or deliberately, because the gold miners were always looking for quartz ledges, and there was chaparral or trees in the way, so they just set fire to it. So did the, uh, the sheep herders. Um, they wanted better grass for their, their herds, so they'd set fire to the forest too. So here you have an environmental holocaust triggered within just a few years, which had a devastating impact on the Sierra that John Muir came you know, and began commenting on when he came here. But also wherever you have gold and silver mining, in those days, you also will find mercury, because mercury um, has an affinity for the precious metals it amalgamates with them. And California was either fortunate or very unfortunate in that it has a lot of mercury, but in the coast ranges rather than in the Sierra. So they would get the mercury out of cinnabar ores in the coast range and refine it and then take it over to the Sierra, which doesn't have naturally occurring mercury, and then use it in great quantities to trap the gold and the silver. 
So all the rivers, anywhere that there was gold or silver mining now, you're going to find that the rivers are permanently contaminated with mercury. San Francisco Bay is horribly contaminated with mercury on, in the sediments on the bottom, as is Clear Lake, where there were a lot of mercury mines at that time, too. And this works up the food chain. It becomes methylated mercury and works up the food chain. So it's not a very good idea to eat fish or shellfish uh, out of these bodies of water, in fact. What happened uh, when farmers who began to settle in the valleys below uh, the Sierra Nevada, what happened when they realized that this toxic sludge was drowning their orchards and their fields? The, the farmers had come and began establishing a great agricultural uh, industry in California in the late 50s and the 60s, and they were largely supplying the miners who needed food from the valleys. And there are these alluvial the great alluvial valleys of California that are filled with very, very rich soil. And they realized that this, combined with the, um, the climate in California, could produce bonanza crops. And so they were starting to get rich by farming the land. But at the same time, these great debris flows were coming down the rivers. Anytime that there was a spring runoff, um, what you would get was not clear water, but... Um, essentially a kind of a thick slurry of yellow mud, which would vomit out of these canyon mouths and spread over the land because uh, since the rivers no longer had any beds, since they'd filled with sediment, the rivers had nowhere to go except over the land, and then they just covered it with these sterile um, slickens, they were called, which is gravel and fine sediment, sand, mud, clay, and such. And this is not at all fertile. This is essentially just sterile stuff. Uh, that would take thousands of years to break down. And this buried the, the finer soils and, in fact, um, and destroyed the towns, destroyed the farms. There are accounts of trees being buried up to their topmost branches, full-grown oak trees. In some places, the sediments were um, 80, 90 feet deep. So it was like having a giant glacier sort of move down, the, a permanent one, move down from the mountains and bury everything that you had. So they, um, although they were supplying the miners and they realized that miners were a source of wealth, at the same time they realized that everything that they depended on was being destroyed. And so they instituted lawsuits uh, to try to stop the mining. And so it was kind of a it was a tremendous shock in California when Judge Lorenzo Sawyer handed down an injunction against the mines in 1884. But that also marks sort of the shift in California from mining as the uh, primary industry to agriculture as the primary industry. But I should also say that, you know, the, the way that farming has traditionally been practiced in California is not the kind of mm, benign image that we have of farming, where the farmer occupies the land and tills it and knows his particular, his particular piece of land. It's land monopoly, and many of the so-called farmers are absentee. They may live in the cities, actually, and, um, and work the soil from a, a good long distance through managers. And they also were trying to get as rich as possible, particularly through wheat farming, and so they would raise bonanza crops of wheat year after year without replenishing the soil until the soil was virtually exhausted. So at the turn of the century, the novelist Frank Norris wrote a great novel called The Octopus about the battle between the railroad and the so-called farmers. And he says in that book, 
farming as it is practiced in California is simply a, another extension of mining. That 25 years before these guys had been mining, now they were mining the soil. And it was the same thing. He called it the true California spirit. After us, the deluge. They didn't care, he said. And that's true. They, they essentially exhausted the soils in California, too. So this ethos of mining, I, mining is both a real thing, um, which is dramatic, but it's also a metaphor for the way that our culture does so much its getting of money. It is the very sort of paradigm of non-sustainable development, where you extract stuff and you send the waste downstream, downwind, and pre preferably downtime to posterity to worry about and to pay for. And that is the very definition of non-sustainable development. And that's the way we do so much, not just mining, but, but agriculture, agribusiness, and so much else that we do today. You just said it took years for the Anti-Debris Society to get a court decision in their favor. So there were huge forces at work who wanted to preserve mining. And I try to imagine, going back to San Francisco, the city at that time that had grown up to depend on mining and had the whole south of market area was was a iron industry section. They were building all the machines. So what they needed to do, find a new market for the machinery of mining that they wanted to continue to prom. Yes, San Francisco is very interesting. Market Street is the broadest street in the city. It's 120 feet wide, and it sort of bisects north of market from south of market. And north of market was the financial district. That's the area of gold. South of market was the industrial and immigrant area. That's the iron district where the ironworks and the smelters and the refineries were very unhealthy. The wealthy lived on the other side of Market Street. Um, and it was the greatest machine-producing area in the whole Pacific Basin because of the need for mining equipment, the most advanced mining equipment, which was constantly advancing, by the way. It was a period of tremendous technological innovation. And not just mining machinery for California and Nevada. They were exporting this to Mexico and throughout the whole Pacific Basin, even as far away as South Africa. Now, when the Sawyer decision stopped hydraulic mining in 1884, that um, essentially put an end to much of the market for this mining machinery. Many of the mining engineers then scattered around the world, particularly to South Africa. And that meant that the really canny iron workers, uh, owners of the ironworks, had to find some new market. And so um, one of the lead ones, a man named Irving Murray Scott, who is one of my main characters, then uh, saw the main chance and shifted into armaments and began producing uh, primo battleships, which would come in very, very useful in the Spanish-American War in 1898. It's really amazing to consider that all this was done within a generation, from a sleepy hamlet to this... Uh, smoke, fire, belching place of production. San Francisco became a huge export town in just 30 years. Well, everybody commented on that at the time. I mean, it was an instant city. And you know the fact that within 25 years of its effective founding in the gold rush, San Francisco had the greatest hotel in the world, the Palace Hotel, which was built on silver profits. It had, you know, major banking institutions. It had the leading mining stock market in the world. It was connected through to the rest of the city by railroads, telegraphs, everything. It was by far the leading city in the entire West. There's nothing on the East Coast that's comparable. I mean, this was it, the city. Everybody in the West referred to San Francisco as the city. The Portland, Seattle, Los Angeles were only beginning at that time, sort of cow towns. San Francisco was it. So 
it was the great whirlpool, the maelstrom of the West, and it, it needed to pull everything into it in order to build itself. You know, it's not that they didn't know at that time. I, I was fascinated by this uh, report you referred to in your book that uh, Carl Gilbert went around and did research between 1905 and 1909 to see what the deferred costs of mining had been. Yes, Grove Carl Gilbert was one of the great um, geologists, American geologists, and the uh, U.S. Geological Survey sent him out um, after about 20, 30 years after the, uh, hydraulic mining had stopped to find out what the damage had been, and he produced a terrific report, which is a classic in its kind, about the tremendous damage. And he estimated that the amount of overburden removed uh, in hydraulic mining within a few years was about eight times the volume removed for the Panama Canal. All of this had been sluiced down into the Central Valley and ultimately into San Francisco Bay. Um, so that's a tremendous amount of land moved. Just for a moment to go back to the opening metaphor of the maelstrom, after really virtually really pulling trees and bears, as Edgar Allan Poe says, into this maelstrom from the Sierras, uh, now the maelstrom reaches as far as British Columbia, as South Africa, as overseas to pull these societies into the maelstrom of mining, where it even persists in some places until today. You can read articles on how the miners in, in Brazil, in Java, uh, Indonesia, um, all around the world are now being poisoned by cyanide and by mercury, and communities are being devastated everywhere by the kind of mining which was forbidden in California, but then exported to the rest of the world. So it's still going on today. It's even going on actually in Nevada with the um, gigantic cyanide heap leaching piles, which are demolishing entire mountain ranges and draining whole aquifers, which will dry up rivers and springs, etc. But the real devastation is continuing in places like Burma and Thailand and Colombia, where they're today using the exact same kind of hydraulic mining techniques that were banned in California because of the environmental destruction. And these are frequently financed by U.S. or Canadian uh, companies, which wouldn't allow those kinds of techniques in their own country. So you export the damage elsewhere. And very few people are aware of this. That was a conversation with Dr. Gray Brecken from the archives of TUC Radio. We were talking about the chapter on gold mining from his book, Imperial San Francisco, Urban Power, Earthly Ruin. We spoke in Inverness, California, on August 8, 2000. Meanwhile, Bracken's book, Imperial San Francisco, has become a classic in urban studies and was republished in 2006. Gray Bracken is visiting scholar in the UC Berkeley Department of Geography and has embarked on a new project that continues to give him pleasure and inspiration. He and a team of researchers are chronicling the often forgotten works of the 1930s and 40s New Deal. The livingnewdeal.org website shows the record of a lost society of a once intensely public-spirited America. They have so far mapped more than 17,000 sites across the U.S., and that amounts to more than 100 sites in every state. 
Workers built thousands of exquisite monuments to public life, from post offices, schools, theaters to parks, museums and botanical gardens. Also utilitarian projects, such as municipal water and sewage systems, airports and bridges. All this can serve as contrast and inspiration to the current New Deal. You can even give your input at the livingnewdeal.org website. Come back next week when Gray Bracken talks about how Imperial San Francisco got its water and the partial flooding of Yosemite Park. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. Look at the newest programs or the podcast page. While you're there, you can subscribe to weekly free podcasts. My name is Maria Geleiden. Thank you for listening.